Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. Right now, I know it seems like the beast has us on the run most of the time. We run from one place to another. It's like he gets into our our paycheck. He gets into our job. He gets into our government. He gets into our military. He gets into our medical system. I mean, if you're like me, you're answering questions at the doctor's office. You thought you'd never have to answer. You know, Um, they've infected everything. And so even though to the natural eye, it's like we're on the run. The sorcerer's fire is is trying to consume us. The truth is we're about to consume them. We're about to burn them up with truth, with the sword of the word. We're going to be full of the fire of the Ruach HaKadosh. We're going to devour the house of Esau. We're going to devour the house of the red beast. But what about about these other sorcerers? Well, Revelation 12, 4, it says his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Right. Like we said, if the stars can symbolize, depending on context, the children of Abraham, it tells you that even the children of Abraham are subject to being deceived. Because remember, the the beast, the red beast, he derives his authority from the red dragon, the red serpent. And so what does the red serpent do? His tail's going to sweep away a third of the stars. So his his sorcery is going to deceive some. And I would suggest that those who will be deceived and swept away, it, it will be because they're not grounded in the word. It's that simple. They're not grounded in the word. They're not doing the word. For some reason, they have thought it was okay to stand there as a person of faith, nod their heads and say, yes, amen, that's right. And the whole time thinking they can go on sinning without any consequence, without any judgment. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be part of that. Because if if the Holy Spirit, if the Ruach HaKodesh HaKodesh is breathing holy fire of the word into us every day, you don't have to be one of those ministers of fire who flames out with Esau's sheep. And that's just it. If we're Yeshua sheep, we don't need to be mingling out there with Esau's flocks. Because the more we mingle with Esau's flocks, the more subject we are to being deceived by the sorcerer. We're, we're going to be singed. We're going to be influenced. And we'll, we'll lose the handle on what is heavenly fire and what is a sorcerer's fire. So we don't want to be deceived by miraculous signs. False prophets and apostles use sorcery to deceive, and they will specialize in what is sensational and what is spectacular. Sometimes Yeshua could do spectacular miracles, but if you'll notice, he didn't heal everyone or calm every storm. What he did do was emphasize the truth of the word and doing the works of the Father. He says, this is evidence of a good shepherd, because the good shepherd hears the Father's voice walking. And that should be the voice that Jacob's sheep follow. If we're only following because of the signs and the wonders and the emotional high, we're in big, big trouble. We shouldn't be impressed by fire. We have to be the fire of Jacob and the flame of Joseph. 
we have to consume the lies of Esau's mountain, like it says in Obadiah 121. Saviors will ascend Mount Sion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be Hashem's. That's from March Scroll. So we have to be skilled in the word in order to judge the mountain of Esau, which is full of sorcery. It's full of lies. So as we kind of review where we've come from, you know, Yeshua having the conversation with the Judeans there at Hanukkah in the Gospels when he's walking in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. Uh, he he kind of gets into a hermeneutical argument with them because they're trying to they're trying to uh, accuse him of blasphemy, making himself out to be Elohim, and he pretty well takes them to school. Hermeneutically, he says, "Now wait a minute. If you're using that as the basis that I call myself a son of Elohim, then you would have to all, also be blasphemers because we are all Elohim." and the sense of human judges, not the creator Elohim. You have to know the context in which the word is used. And so we're all sons of Elohim. We are all hum human judges of the works of the word. And this is what we were created to be. We, you know, the, the house of Israel, the intent was always for them to judge from the 12 gates of Jerusalem. And so that kind of answers the question, who is this coming up from the wilderness? It's those who have learned to judge their salvation rightly and to do justly. They've separated themselves from the Korachs. They've separated themselves from the Datans and the Avirams and the Zimris, the, the rebels and the, the immoral people. It's not easy to do that sometimes to separate yourself from the rebels and the immoral people. But again, if you can't guard your little beating heart, then how in the world are you going to judge the nations with Yeshua? If you can't judge your own household, then how in the world? Remember what, what Moses says, get away from their families, get away from their tents. And that's exactly what I would have wanted to do. If I were a parent, I would have been telling my kids, get away from their tents, get away from their tents, get away from their tents. Well, what tents are out there that we might be letting our kids play around when we know the earth is about to open up and swallow this flood of wickedness? Now, when the earth does open up and swallow this flood of wickedness that the dragon is spewing out after us, don't you think? that part of that is just a replay, and it's going to be the tents of the wicked that are actually swallowed up when that happens. Do you want your kids playing at their tent? If you know there's immorality in that tent, if you know that there's rebellion in that tent, if there's every kind of sorcery and wickedness in that tent, is that where you want your children playing? And so we have to, to judge our own homes and our own households in order to protect them from this consuming fire that's going to consume the lies of Esau's mountain. If they're playing on Esau's mountain and they're blending with Esau's sheep, how in the world can we protect them? We need to make sure that they know the voice of Yeshua. That even if, if they're in some state of confusion, sometimes our, our children and grandchildren and family, they're not walking as we would have them to walk. They're not walking in a way that we believe is, is you know, peace and safety in Messiah Yeshua. They think there's peace and safety in where they're walking, but there's not. You keep teaching, you keep proclaiming the word 
so that when they do come to themselves, they'll know which way to turn, that they won't be susceptible to the sorcery. And we know that there's going to be sorcerers walking with us. I don't know why we're so surprised when we find out that somebody that's been walking with us for a while, they're rebellious, they're, you know, gossipers, they're uh, trying to turn against leadership, they're trying to turn others against leadership, they're they're running around with tinfoil hats, chasing things, but their personal life is a wreck because they don't really want to obey the Torah, they just want to find the beast, or they want to find an antichrist, or they want to find a conspiracy. And somehow Torah was an excuse to do that. Um, Because, well, these people look different, I'll walk with them. But often all they're really trying to do, and when they're walking with you, is seduce you into their agenda. And, And what you have to be suspicious of is when somebody comes into your fellowship and they have one agenda only. They don't have any room for anything else except this one agenda. And if you try to have a conversation with them, that same subject will come up over and over and over and over. And it's usually things that aren't even fruitful. It might be fascinating. It might be wonderful, like we were talking about last week. It might be that wonderful roller coaster ride of exhilaration. Well, listen to this conspiracy. Well, listen to this thing. But you know what? That roller coaster always ends up right back at the same place it started. It just doesn't bear fruit. And so they're there to recruit you over to that particular agenda. But in terms of encouraging you to be well-rounded in the word and becoming skilled in the whole word of Adonai, not so much. But they will walk among us and they will pretend to be ministers of fire. What are they trying to do? Well, eventually they're going to prevent you from crossing through the flaming swords of the Caribbean. Because remember, you don't go back in there. You don't go back into the garden. You don't go to your inheritance in the Garden of Eden in a state of unholiness, profanity, immorality, any of these other rebellious sins. Now, what if you repent? Is there grace? Absolutely. 100%. The gates of repentance are always open. But believing that you can go back into that garden, with no desire to rectify those wrongs within yourself. That's a deception. But this inheritance is being handed down to you from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the long-term plan. And so the, the seducers and the sorcerers, they've always been out there trying to turn you away from a life of righteousness and holiness, trying to consume your time so that you spend less time studying that flaming sword of the word so that you are less fit as a minister of fire because fire doesn't consume fire. You're perfectly home and at home in fire. If you were full of the word and full of the Holy spirit, what can the fire do to you? Nothing more than it did to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That fourth one in the fire assured us that nothing horrible was going to happen to them. So Genesis three twenty four it says he drove the man out And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the Caribbean and the flaming, here's our word again, lahat, flaming, lahat, sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of light. And I know we tend to think of a physical sword, you know, like, I don't know, a knight in shining armor or one of the three musketeers using a sword. That's not the kind of sword it is. Uh, It's a These are flaming ministers of fire, and the implication here is those swords actually went all the way around the perimeter of that realm we call the Garden of Eden. 
And it's not that far away, by the way. If you're in the land of Israel, you're not that far away from the Garden of Eden. It just can't be perceived at this point with the natural eye. And there's a fine line between the Garden of Eden and sorcery. You notice we're we're using um, a word lahat as a flaming minister of fire. Well, again, this is what sorcery does. It tries to deceive you into thinking it is using holy fire but it's not using holy fire. It's using unholy fire. It's using the fire of deception. And this is what sorcery does. It blurs the lines. The Caribbean are drawing very clear lines around the Garden of Eden because the way of the tree of life is in there. And so the job of the Caribbean, make sure these lines are not blurred. Make sure people understand the difference between clean and unclean. Make sure they know the difference between obedience and disobedience. And what the sorcerer wants to do is to blur those lines. So you're just pretty much clueless. People nowadays, they don't understand holiness. They don't understand purity. They don't even understand the basic modesty of the temple. You know, where he says, you know what, priests, put on britches. Because you're going to have to walk up steps. It's like we've, we've thrown off all restraint. We ignore every distinct line of the Torah. And that's what sorcery does. So what is sorcery? It blurs the lines of obedience. But we have to remember there's a flaming sword of the word. It's eternal. And if it's blurred, it's only in our minds. There is no doubt in that region of the spirit where the line is drawn. No doubt whatsoever where the boundaries are. And there shouldn't be any doubt in our mind where the boundaries are because every boundary begins with it is written. But what does deception do? It eats you up. It consumes the disobedient. It makes you thirsty. There's no river of life. And and this is kind of the way to understand death. Remember when in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was thirsty. He says, send Lazarus just to put a drop of water on my tongue. Well, dude, you don't even have a tongue. So how is he going to put water on it, even if he could? See, he was somehow deceived into thinking, oh, I can see Lazarus over there in Abraham's bosom. It'll be a simple thing. He can just put a drop of water on my tongue because I'm tormented here. Well, that was the deception. He lived his life in a state of deception, believing that he and Lazarus would end up in the same spot. There was nothing really that divided or separated them. And most of the world is going down that path, folks. They don't think there's any difference. There's nothing divided, dividing a believer and somebody who walks in the righteousness of Yeshua and the way that they walk after their own heart and eyes. But the truth is, once you're dead, you're going to be thirsty. Because see, Yeshua said, If you come to me and drink, you'll never thirst again. He's telling us, I'm going to restore you to your inheritance. I'm going to restore you to the rivers of Eden, where I give drink to the whole garden, that there's spiritual water there. It's life. There's life in the garden. You're never going to die. Death is being separated from his presence. If you're separated from his presence because you believed that there was no difference, that you did not believe Yeshua was the way, the truth, and the life, that you did not believe that the word had any 
power or authority over your life for you to obey it or for you to obey what it said rather than your version of it, it's going to consume you and it's going to make you thirsty. And you'll never stop being thirsty because there's something there that you cannot access, access in Sheol. And it's the rivers of the water of life. And this is what Yeshua tried to explain to us at Sukkot when he stood up and he talked about, you know, he was the source of that living water. And if we never thirst again with Yeshua, it means we're never going to leave life. We're not just resurrected, we stay resurrected. Because the water of the river of life is going to flow perpetually in that garden. And so I wanted to show you a little graphic. These are the rivers of Eden as Genesis 2 describes them and the way that they moved. The outer river was the Pishon. Uh, it circled the garden. The next was the Gihon. It also circled the garden. The third river was the Chidakel or the Tigris. And it says it walked. It walked around the garden. Remember the voice of Elohim walking in the garden around the tree of life. Think of the tree of life there in the center of the garden. And so this is a river flowed out of Eden and watered the whole garden. Well, where did the water come from? Well, it's understood that there is an upper Eden, the place of the throne, and that this lower Eden or the garden of Eden, as we call it, that water flowed out from the throne, from the upper garden, and then it flowed down into the lower garden, just like it says in Revelation, just like it says in Ezekiel. And so the water came out from under the throne and it watered the whole lower garden, which was created for human beings, for Adam and Eve. And so as these rivers circled, what Yeshua is saying is these rivers are representing the fire and the water of the Holy Spirit, that you'll never be thirsty. You can be on fire and never be thirsty. Not like dead people, not like the rich man who are separated from the presence. They'll be eternally thirsty because they can't come into this garden where the river of life is. They can't come in where the tree of life is. There's a flaming sword. See how the flaming sword would go round and round to protect the garden? Well, that's what should be in our hearts. The flaming sword of the word should be going round and round and round and round our hearts every single day, our little beating hearts, protecting our heart from the, the filth, the unholiness, the impurity, the lies, the rebellion, the immorality of the world out there where there is hunger and there is thirst and there always will be. But in obedience, there is the river of the water of life. We make a home for Yeshua there because we agree to guard it and service, to do the service, to work it, that garden. So understanding how the rivers work to nourish the Garden of Eden and to protect it, then you can then see why he was equating it with the spirit of Adonai. Because in this graphic, as it's going around, you can see the seven spirits of Adonai that are expressions of the Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit, but Isaiah gives it names like wisdom and understanding and counsel and power and knowledge and reverence. 
And so that's why in workbook one, we spend so much time on the seven spirits of Adonite so that you can understand how the Holy Spirit works. And you can see, you know, what it would be like to be in the Garden of Eden and to have the spirit of Adonai ever present with you, constantly giving you water of the word, washing you with the water of the word. Okay, so again, if we go back to the verse where it talks about he drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, <clears throat> and in an ideal world, I would be able to unhinge the, that graphic and show you how each one is like a wheel within a wheel so that you could see Ezekiel's wheels turning every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. But where it says the flaming sword of the Caribbean, that expression there is lahat ha-cherif, lahat ha-cherif. And there's the flaming, remember the flaming ministers of fire, and then it's ha-cherif. And uh, the flaming sword, cherif, you can hear the play on word there with the cherubim, um, but cherif means sword in Hebrew. And sword in Hebrew literally means to make thirsty. Yeah, sword means to make thirsty. So you can see how as that flaming sword is, is going round and round and round the Garden of Eden to protect the way to the tree of life, how, you know, not only would these angels be called ministers of fire, uh, but the tribes of Israel. Because remember, as they built the Mishkan, as they built the tabernacle, it was on the pattern of the Garden of Eden. Uh, it was seen as like a, a little recreation of the Garden of Eden so that the presence could dwell among them in the wilderness. And so as Israel learns the, the fire services of the sacrifices and the incense and so forth, then they're being trained as these flaming ministers of fire who, you know, if they were to master you know, the, the heart of service, then theoretically they could be placed back into the Garden of Eden, into their inheritance, and they would be like those swords that guarded the garden. Because, see, they surrounded and guarded the Mishkan in the wilderness. And remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant, the commandments, the tree of life. And so it's, it's prophetic. What they were doing in the wilderness was preparation for what they will be doing when we inherit, when we're resurrected and we inherit the garden once again. Um, what has been before will be again. So if we are out here in the wilderness of the peoples, he's doing the exact same thing. He's training us as the, the tribes of Israel to become flaming ministers of fire and to begin to be faithful to guard the Mishkan, because if we guard the Mishkan, we're guarding the presence of Adonai among us. If we do the service of the Mishkan, if we serve one another in the Mishkan, then again, he's preparing us to place us back into our inheritance because he knows we will serve those there. That it won't be all me, you know, floating on a cloud, playing a harp and eating butterfingers. It's it's serving others. And, you know, what does he say about Shabbat? If you will keep your foot from doing your own thing, 
if we could learn that one lesson, that doing the service of the Mishkan and guarding the service of the Mishkan, these are preparation for our inheritance. So this is what's going to happen. Remember the question in Song of Songs, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Well, it's the tribes of Israel. Israel will ascend. And one day, who knows, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, Israel will ascend at the resurrection. And they're going to be uh, ready to resume the honor guard of the garden. They're going to be prepared to guard it and serve in it. They're not going to be fooled by, I think, I feel, I want, I need. Remember, these are things the soul crave. These are things that, the, that characterize the soul, the nefesh in Hebrew. Nefesh is the soul. We, Yeshua came to save your soul. Never says he came to save your spirit. Your, your spirit is fine. It came from Elohim. Your soul needs salvation. Your soul needs to come into subjection to the spirit of Elohim. Because when the soul is rebellious against the spirit of Elohim in you, then the, the soul will masquerade as the spirit and you will be fooled into thinking that what you think is the spirit, that what you feel is the spirit, that what you want is the spirit, that what you need is the spirit. When that is never the way spiritual sentences start. Spiritual sentences start with, it is written. They don't start with, I think, I feel, I want, I need. And when we get that lesson, it is written, then what we start to do is to disciple the soul. And all of a sudden, the soul will begin to think what the spirit thinks. The soul will begin to feel what the spirit feels. The soul will begin to want what the spirit wants. The soul will begin to need what the spirit needs. And so when we're conducting our battles with the adversary, when we're using this flaming sword, part of it is not being deceived by the illusion of our souls, our animal appetites dictating to us what truth is, because truth is based on it is written. What you think, feel, want, and need will change from day to day, hour to hour, and in some cases, second to second. What is written will never change, ever. Once we get that difference, then we will begin to fulfill our intended roles in the creation. That's when we will be educated and trained to rule and to reign with Yeshua as ministers of fire. And I've also even wondered, like, you know, the two caravan weren't even needed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve were driven away. Could it be that once Israel is is replaced in their inheritance, they're resurrected and they're put back into the garden to guard and to serve one another and then to judge the nations of the earth? And, and at that at that point, you have to understand how the Garden of Eden and Jerusalem are linked. I mean, you get it in Revelation, but sometimes we don't always understand that. And that's a lesson for another day. But I've wondered, once Israel is back in place, fulfilling what they were created to do, are the two Caribbean even needed at that point? 
because they weren't needed before. I don't know. Just one of those things that runs through my head. Some things just need to keep running. Um, but we've got the, the serpent who is a deceiver. He was a deceiver in the beginning, and he is continuing to deceive, to commit sorcery against humankind. And those who are most vulnerable are those who cling to Babylon, which was the first beast kingdom. And so in Revelation, it shows us both Babylon, Babylon the Great has fallen, fallen, but it also shows us the red beast, which is Rome and its daughters, uh, which the daughters are the ones we're dwelling among today. All the, the systems of Rome have been passed down into the nations of the earth, as we see in the feet. But Babylon was the head. Rome was the legs. We're living in the feet. <laughs> but see, if you're holding on to the image of the beast, you're still holding on to Babylon because it was one beast. It was one image, multiple empires, but one image. So if you're holding on to the beast, you're still holding on to Babylon. You're still holding on to Medo-Persia. You're still holding on to Greece. You're still holding on to Rome. So what applies to Babylon applies to those other kingdoms. Revelation 18.23 says, And the light of a lamp will never shine in you again, and the voice of the groom and the bride will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the powerful people of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your witchcraft. So, who's never going to be seen in Babylon again? Well, he's going to rescue us. Remember the first exile in Babylon? He's going to rescue us from Babylon the Great. He's going to rescue us from Persia and from Greece and from Rome and from all the, the systems within the nations of the world. Those who obey the word with the power of the Holy Spirit, um, there's no need to illuminate the way and fall in Babylon again. Remember, it's, it's going to be the abode of every unclean spirit. Instead, we're, we're going to be with the, the lamb. Remember, the lamp is the lamb in Jerusalem. And so once we rise to the garden and to our inheritance, then all these unclean things and abominations, imagine what that's going to look like. I mean, you talk about a cesspool. Uh, you talk about pollution. But the merchants of the earth and remember, these, these are called the powerful people of the earth. He's like, are they all merchants? No, they just have to be powerful people of any system. It can be economic, but it can be military, but it can be political, but it could be athletic. You think of any system that came out of Greece and Rome, right there. The, peop the powerful people who are controlling those systems. These are the powerful people of the earth who can use witchcraft to deceive the nations. Does it mean every politician or every powerful person is a witch? No. But <laughs> power and money are seductive. And so the leopard spot systems that Rome perfected, they will use those systems because it's these are the ways to control the greatest number of people with the least amount of energy expended. So what? how, are this, how is this witchcraft? How are the powerful people of the earth, uh, who he's calling merchants, right? So they don't, like I say, don't envision just somebody who's a business person. 
any powerful person who is part of a controlling system can be considered in this category. And what is the witchcraft that they're using? Let's look right here. Because we're just going to look at the, the absolute word right here. All right, witchcraft. And you're familiar with this. Most of you have looked this up, especially since COVID became a thing. And I, I've seen this blown way out of proportion during COVID um, because it was pulled out of its context. And um, well, we'll just, we'll tread softly right here. But anyway, witchcraft, pharmakia. And that's uh, Strong's 5332 in the Greek. It can mean a medication. Uh, it can mean magic sorcery, or witchcraft. Now, not every one of those descriptions describes something from the evil arts, the dark arts. Medication, it has a legitimate use as medication, but it can also be used in magic, sorcery, or witchcraft. And remember, witchcraft is something that powerful people use. They use it to control others. So here's the outline of biblical usage. The use or the administering of drugs, poisoning, sorcery, magical arts often found in connection with idolatry and fostered by it. But, and this is important, metaphorical of the deceptions and seductions of idolatry. Now, which one of those fits in the whole context of the book of Revelation? And which one of those is going to fit into the context of our Torah portion? Because before we condemn all medicine and the entire medical system, let's put this particular passage in the proper context. Remember that the, the deception sometimes is to misdirect you into painting something with a broad brush and then completely missing the actual context of the thing because we see some similarities in our situation. We saw something go around the world. We're like, oh, no, we don't want to be part of that. And all of a sudden, Big Farm was evil. Well, I'm not disagreeing too much on that in terms of their practices and how they will you know, choke out truly useful drugs because they can't make enough money on it. Uh, how they'll deliberately push drugs that we know will hurt us more than help us. And all you have to do is listen to the side effects. If you watch a pharmacy or a drug commercial, you're thinking, my goodness, if I was trying to kill somebody, I'd give them that. And then they administer drugs that make you dependent. Or if you withhold the drug, then you're going to get suicidal or something. Are there problems with it? Yeah, it's inherent in what it is, pharmacia. The, the same delivery method of cure, or at least of help, can also be a delivery method of death. We're living in a fallen world. And just substituting essential oils and herbs and vitamins and things like that, I'm all for it. You can go check my <laughs> cabinet. I take lots of vitamins. I take lots of herbs. I've got lots of essential oils. But you know what? Every single one of those is also taken out of a fallen world. So we have to look to the healer. We can't lean upon the pharmacy. We can't lean upon our essential oils and our herbs, but we have to be judicious. Remember, judges. We have to be sons and daughters of Elohim. We have to be judges 
of what is clean and unclean. And we have to be careful what we put in this temple. If we want to invite the presence of Almighty God, we have to be careful what we introduce into this temple. So we have to learn to put things in context. So look at this, pharmakia. Before we just say it's horrible sorcery magic, well, the cognate in Hebrew to it is lahat, the word we've been working with for a few weeks now, the flaming minister of fire. That's why I say you have to, when it blurs the lines, we have to be careful because lahat is that flame of, flame of fire that describes ministering angels, um, the consuming fire of Elohim. But it's really strange that the scripture uses the same word for flaming fire to describe both a holy heavenly minister and a sorcerer. And I'll give you an example. Uh, this is from Exodus 7:11. It says, Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they too, the soothsayer priests of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. And what is that? Lahat, lahat. And you said, oh, they did drugs? <laughs> well, whatever they were using, okay, it wasn't right. They were blurring the lines. And so Moses has an authentic wonder when he when Aaron throws down the rod, but then the sorcerers with their secret arts, they throw down their rods, and it looks like there's crocodiles running around the palace. So were the, the crocodiles scampering around the palace, were they real? We don't know. We don't know, really know what real is when it comes to sorcery because it's an illusion. But how do we know they were an illusion? Because Moses' rod gobbled them up. He says it's sorcery. It's a deception. And so what was happening, the, Moses brought the word, let my people go. That was truth. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He didn't want to let him go. He did not want to believe that Moses had the power of Adonai behind him. So he tells his sorcerers, you do that too. You make yours turn into crocodiles. And so they do. But see, the reason for doing that was he wanted a reason to disobey the word of Moses. And this is why my heart goes out to people who haven't yet recognized the power of the word of Moses in the first five books of scripture and the power of the prophecy in the books of Moses. Because the sorcerer has been out there deceiving them into thinking they can disobey the word. And they don't even know they're doing it. That's the horrible thing. They don't even know they're disobeying. I don't think Pharaoh had any illusions. <laughs> he wasn't deluded on that particular point. He knew he wanted to be disobedient. But this is what happens. A sorcerer will deceive us into engaging in immoral behavior, deathly behavior, hopeless behavior, faithless behavior, and it perpetuates slavery to sin and death. Pharaoh's trying to keep the Hebrews in slavery, not just physical slavery, but to, in slavery to the idols of Egypt, sin and death. And when drugs do the same thing, that's when they're sorcery. When drugs deceive us into immoral, deathly, hopeless, faithless behaviors that perpetuate slavery to sin and death is sorcery. It's poison. We're poisoning ourselves for the most part. But the poisoning aspect of it 
Remember back here, uh, one of the definitions was poisoning. This is important because this wormwood poison of Israel was defined for us in this exact Torah portion, Nitzavim. And it, it's to hear the word and yet in your heart to believe that Elohim will not judge you for that sin. You stand side by side with people of the covenant and you nod your head and say, uh-huh, and you say, amen. But in your heart of hearts, you truly believe that you can get away with doing whatever you want to do. And there's not going to be any judgment for your sin. And so that's the danger of becoming fixated on big farm as the greatest poisoner, because what will happen is we will begin to externalize the threat of wormwood, that it's always the man coming to get us, that it's always the system coming to get us, that it's always the beast coming to get us. When what the Torah portion is saying is don't worry too much about that. You need to be worried about what's going on in your heart. You need to internalize the word because the most lethal poison you'll ever take is the poison of yourself that you swallow. The most vicious beast that will ever attack you is yourself. And so it's kind of you know, a matter of light and heavy here. What good is it going to be if you look out here into the world and say, oh, there's a beast over there. There's an antichrist over there. There's a deceiver over there. There's a sorcerer over there. Well, good for you. <laughs> There's no shortage. I mean, don't hurt yourself, Pat. You're on the back, yourself on the back if you find a beast system. They're everywhere. Just pick up a newspaper, you know, watch a news program. But what the Torah portion is saying is if we fail to repent and repair the beast inside of us, it's not going to do us much good to post articles on poison wormwood. It's not going to do us much good to post articles about big farm and about, you know, all the things going on in politics and the military and athletics and, and everything that has been served up to discourage the people of faith, even more in the last few years. He says, don't be distracted by all that. You keep focused on the beast within. You make sure there's not a bitter root of sin that is persisting in you. And that's especially true at this time of year when Nitzavim, I mean, we're standing right here at the Feast of Trumpets. We're standing right here. We can almost hear the shofar from right here. And resurrection could be approaching tomorrow night. Resurrection could be approaching day after tomorrow. We don't know. No man knows. But what if it is? Nitzavim is reminding us, don't worry about all that stuff out there right now. Focus inward. The sound of the shofar is coming. Focus inward because that shofar is the voice of Elohim. What are you going to do, do when you hear the voice of Elohim walking in your garden? Are you going to be afraid and ashamed and hide? Are you going to be resurrected? You're going to be transformed. You're going to be changed because you weren't distracted. Let's, let's read this passage so you can see I'm not just making this up. Deuteronomy 29, and I'm just going to read 14 through 21. You are standing, remember, today. Today is the day that you change. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord. He says, now it is not with you alone that I am making this covenant and this oath, 
but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we passed through the midst of the nations through which you passed. You have all passed into other nations, most of you. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols made of wood and stone and silver and gold, which they had with them. And here's where you find out where your attention needs to be focused so that there will not be a man among you or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will consider himself fortunate in his heart, saying, I will do well, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land along with the dry. You're not going to take that rebellion into the Garden of Eden. It's a watered land. There's life in there, and that kind of death thought will not make it through the fire. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his wrath will burn against that person and every curse that is written in this book will lie upon him and the Lord will wipe out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for disaster from all the tribes of Israel in accordance with all the curses of the covenant, which is written in this book of the law. What do we start saying tomorrow? May your name be inscribed and sealed in the book of life. May your name be inscribed and sealed in the book of life. We don't want our names to be wiped out from under heaven. These are not people who didn't hear the word. These are people who stood right there through a 40-year journey, and they heard the words of Moses. They heard the word of Adonai. And they said, you know what? I'll walk along with these people, but I know I can do whatever I please. And he's just going to accept me into the garden into the watered land. No, he won't. I don't know what he does with you. I don't know if there's timeout, remedial classrooms. I don't know what happens. But we do know curses. And curses aren't good things. Curses are definitely thirsty things outside the garden. So we want to be careful uh, not to demonize all drugs. Drugs that are used to treat a legitimate health issue are not sorcery. And we're in a fallen world. In most cases, they're not ideal. But they can preserve or prolong life. But drugs, especially now more than ever, they're frequently used to transgress the boundaries of life as it's defined in the word. It's, it's creating soul trafficking because it becomes an addiction. It becomes a manipulation. It blurs the lines, and especially the lines of obedience. People would begin to steal to get money for drugs. People will become disrespectful to other people. They will violate their boundaries. They will engage in immoral behavior. They will become rebellious. What are they doing? The drugs are offering a way to tap into a realm that is forbidden to human beings. At this time, it's not given to us. It's not in our authority to try to tap into those realms. It becomes a sorcery. And drugs are illusionists. They're just like sorcerers. They, you can take a drug 
And your soul will tell you, this is fun. This feels good. Or this numbs the pain. And, and often it's an emotional pain. This will help me not feel depressed. It'll tell you a lot of things. And again, if there's a, a legitimate reason, a legitimate health issue, do it. But we're talking about being careful with something that can become a sorcery because it blurs the lines between obedience and disobedience. It'll make you think that something is deadly, that something is not deadly when it is deadly. It is definitely not life. It's not there to preserve your life. It's not there to keep your life. It's not there to save your life. The end of it is death. And you know the difference. And if you don't know the difference, do your research. Before you introduce something like that into your body, do the research. And so maybe this is why pharmakia in Greek is reflecting the Hebrew lahat, a flaming minister of fire. Remember, that fire can destroy those who want to manipulate it for evil and rebellion. Can it poison their hearts into thinking there's going to be no judgment for their sin? <coughs> of course it can. That's what drugs do. They numb you to the idea that there's going to be any judgment for this. There will be. There will be judgment. So let's try to finish up here. This is really heavy. I didn't really plan on it being this heavy. But I guess the picture in the beginning should have tipped me off, right? But this, the worst drug that scripture is talking about is the drug we just read about in Deuteronomy 29, which wasn't written to total heathens. It was written to people who had heard the word, but they didn't hear it. They had poisoned themselves. They had injected in themselves a determination to sin in spite of the word they heard from Moses. And this is a seduction to idolatry. This is the sorcery of the beast, and it's going to cause humankind to worship the image of the beast through deception. This is the primary pharmakia we're talking about. Humankind who reject the notion that there is a creator who will judge them for their actions, and therefore they will worship the image of the beast. And the beast is nothing more than their own will. It's replacing, I think, I feel, I need, I want with, it is written. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.